Well, hello, and welcome to From the Center, the podcast of the Center for Western Studies. I'm John Hodges. I'm the director of the Center here, and uh, we are very glad to have you with us. I am very pleased to have with me today uh, a good friend and colleague, uh, Philip Heimbuch. Philip has, is a multi-talented fellow. He's a music director at a local church here, Grace Community Church, but he's also a fantastic opera singer, and we've been able to do a couple of collaborations ourselves together over the past few years. And I thought it'd be fun to have you in, Philip, to talk about, uh, you know, what it's like to be a Christian in the arts. Um, but also maybe to talk a little bit about your, your experiences on social media. You've, you've, <laughs> you've made some decisions about social media lately that I thought were really useful and helpful, and I thought maybe we could talk about those too. But in the meantime, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's great to have you. I enjoy getting together with you anytime we can. I was just uh, talking to some of my students the other day about uh, your audition for Les Mis back, way oh, back. Nice. And uh, how impressed I was with that was probably the first time we worked together. And that's true. That was that was a while back. Goodness, now. but it was. Uh, I remember you came in, and uh, I'd, I was very concerned about uh, who we would have for Valjean. <laughs> and uh, I'd heard, you know, six or eight different people, and and uh, the director, uh, you know, Matt Lipscomb was the director for the production we did together. And uh, I was very concerned. I was the music director, and I said, Matt, look. This guy can sing the high notes, but he hasn't got the low stuff. And this guy can do the drama, but he can't sing the part. And this guy can, you know, and everybody had pieces of what I was looking for, you know. And, and he said, don't worry, Philip's coming in tomorrow. Oh, no. It's a true story. <laughs> and, I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> yes, he told me that. And I said, well, I've met Philip, and I heard him sing once, and I thought it was pretty good. But I'm really looking for a guy that can, you know, knock this out of the park. And uh, you came in the next day, I think it was the next, uh, I heard two or three people before you, and then you came in and, and uh, said, well, I can start anywhere you want to, and we were in the prologue. Yeah. And, and you started... <laughs> that take an eye for an eye. <laughs> With that, that high A flat. Yeah. And I thought, we found him, oh, he's goodness. here, this is great, <laughs> this is great. The paint peeling off the walls, it was great. Great stuff. <laughs> B high, that was maybe not your highest note in the show, but the almost the high. I mean, yeah, you have a B, don't you? But it, it's definitely an entrance. Oh my goodness! Take an eye for an eye and turn your heart into stone. It's a great moment in the show. Oh, I mean, I think the prologue is basically a conversion experience set to Isn't music. Isn't that the truth? It's, yes. And that, the beauty is that it's like another story must begin. Mm. Like that that whole prologue is a story unto itself, but then it's like, actually, that's the transformation. That's the redemption. This is the, the actual story. Right. Which to me is beautiful. You know, again, that picture of coming to faith in Christ, and then it's like, another story must begin. And I don't know, I think that's why it has such a special place in my heart. Oh my gosh, me too. And I have seen many productions over the years here in, in New York and in London both, and even in Memphis, the touring company in Memphis. And the, the, the most recent one, oh, yeah. but one, I think, was, uh, no, it was the most recent production that closed now on Broadway mm -hmm. some years ago, right? But it was that, re that production, that new, uh, that new production that did something that really took my breath away because they did that whole prologue and then that music for the beginning of the next scene, mm -hmm. that's when they put the title of the show up, Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. And I was just floored by it. You know, the sh it's like the show doesn't start until then. Yeah. yeah but what you've got is the, the kickoff. The, the prologue is the, like you say, the conversion that really makes the rest of the story make sense. Because right. from, from that point on, he's, he's a new man, isn't he? Yeah, you get to see the life of a redeemed man and all the different lives he then touches. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does an amazing thing. Uh, well, he he does many amazing things. He saves the guy uh, caught under the cart, and he he establishes a a factory for the workers, and he you know looks after the people in the town as the mayor and he i mean he goes on and on all sorts of ex saving marius at yeah. the barricade um uh looking after cosette uh, all raising cosette all those things come as the result of his conversion don't they what a great show 
Well, I sure enjoyed doing that with you. That was a great time. <laughs> and you get to work. You get to work with uh, with our good Fontaine all the time, don't you, Amanda? That's true. Yeah, she sings at my church. Yeah. Um, what a what a joy. It's again. It's really neat to see how the arts sort of bring people together. You know, the first run of Les Mis I did at Playhouse mm -hmm. is when I met your brother Chuck. Right. right. And uh, yeah, he was playing the priest. He was playing the priest. I remember because Bishop. there was a. That's true. Yes, being technically I, correct. I, I um, correct myself. There, there was a moment. Um, God has raised you out of darkness. When the priest says oh, that, yeah. the bishop says that, and lifts and Chuck. It was in one of the rehearsals, and we sort of kept it because I'd been on my knees. You know, I'd been thrown down to the ground. And uh, he literally just manhandled, like grabbed me by my elbows and lifted me <laughs> no up. No kidding. First of all, I'd never like felt like that's like a when you're a child and your parents oh, pick you yeah, up. Yeah. And there's that, you know, this is great, you know. But as an adult, I hadn't felt that. And so I don't know. I, I you know, on a very real level, that was really a deep connection that I felt to that moment. And I'd sort of said, Chuck, are you good to keep doing that? <laughs> and so yeah. every, every show. It was like being reminded of my helplessness, but God has oh, raised you out of darkness. And this beautiful. large, burly man just like <laughs> lifting me. And I'm, I'm not a small fellow <laughs> lifting me up to my feet. Yeah. Um, so I, I always found that moment really powerful. Oh, that's very beautiful. Yeah, that's right. I have bought your soul for God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, you and Chuck played together in Oklahoma with me too, That's didn't you? True. Once we did a, a little little production of Oklahoma that wasn't so bad. <laughs> um, you were playing Curly and Chuck was playing Judd. Uh, that was fun. Judd is dead. <laughs> it's it's summer and we're running out of ice. That's what I always It's <laughs> an awful line, isn't it? Uh, but that was fun too. Well, you do a lot of performing around town, I know, especially when the virus is not keeping you from yeah, the stage before the plague, before the plague. <clears throat> um, I, I know you've done stuff with Opera Memphis you've done uh, roles with them you've done roles with uh, uh, Playhouse on the mm -hmm. square I know and um, you've done uh, you 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 really play both sides of the aisle you play musical theater and you play opera um, tell me about what it's like to be a Christian in the in the performing arts world <laughs> From your perspective, I mean, I'm, I did it too for a long time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's the role of a missionary. Mm -hmm. And that's not trying to belittle the people I work with. They're wonderful Heavens people. Heavens no, yeah. Um, and I consider it an honor any chance I get to work with Theater Memphis or Playhouse or Opera Memphis or, you know, Germantown Community Theater, mm -hmm. what have you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I, when I was younger, I grew up in a, a band family. I always wanted to do theater. And my parents just said, no, we're that's okay not not right now and I was always so frustrated and so in my mind there were like two shows that I guess because I didn't know much else about theater it was um, Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis and so in my mind it was like all right I want to do those shows mm -hmm. um, and I just remember being frustrated with my parents for so long and it wasn't until I came to Memphis and I started my master's degree and ironically the first two shows I did was Phantom of the Opera at University of Memphis, and then Les Mis with Playhouse on For the Square. For heaven's sake, is that right? And so I always try and encourage, especially younger people who are growing up maybe in a home where your parents are a little nervous about that. And I've had parents come to me and say, should I get my kid involved in theater? And I just have to, again, remind them, are they ready to be a missionary? Mm. And that's not mm -hmm. an insult. That's mm. just you're walking into a, a place where your beliefs are going to be questioned and you're going to be exposed to a lot of things. And if you're comfortable with that, if you know that going in, then I think, okay, I mean, you have to make that call for yourself. Mm -hmm. But I do like to remind um, people that in my own experience, I was so frustrated. Um, and yet God was more or less saying, not yet, yeah. not yet. Yeah. And, and so when it happened, I felt that I was grounded enough in my faith um, because I think for many people uh, and this is just true in general you know our understanding as Christians that there is a, a God-sized hole in everyone's heart that for a human being worship is like a faucet you can't turn off for many people um, well not many for all of us you know our hearts are idol factories as John Calvin would say so uh, we make idols out of anything be it yeah. our righteousness we'll make it out of our religious performance and for some people, their their God, so to speak, is is the arts. That's that's the only thing they have is that feeling of when the applause you get afterwards or the creation of the art. 
again, it's like I would argue it's mistaking you know the gift for the giver of the mm-hmm. gift. Mm-hmm. But that's that tends to be my experience is you're dealing with people who for them this is sacred. Right. And and so you have to know like walking into that if you've ever walked into a temple like that doesn't mean you walk in and write people off. No, you love them as Christ would. Amen. And you seek to be a light. Um, but just with that recognition that for them this is so much more than just creating beautiful music, creating art. Um, it's for them it's meaning. Mm-hmm. And and uh, mm-hmm. so trying to come at it from the other angle of I mean this is stemming from my ultimate meaning that allows me to then enjoy this, but also leave it there. Like when I, you know, not mistaking the gift for the giver, the understanding yeah. that like one of the things I've had to come to grips with, and I, I had to develop it over time. I think everyone's going to have to wrestle with where you draw the line as to what you will or won't do on stage. Yes. And for me, a big line that was sort of created was when I got engaged. And, uh, you know, this isn't downplaying anything. It's just, you know, I had to wrestle through that with my then fiance, now wife. And I had to rethink some things, what mm-hmm. I would and wouldn't do on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't regret that because at the end of the day, uh, I never want what is fake to trump what is true in my life. And right. the applause of an audience is, is wonderful. It's, there's, I mean, it's an incredibly energetic and electrifying feeling. Um, making beautiful art on stage with colleagues, you know, I was able to perform on so many shows mm-hmm. just where I was. I felt like the weakest link on the stage, and that's not putting myself down. That's just trying to speak to the caliber of, mm-hmm. of entertainers that were up there on stage, the art makers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even then, all that art, it's not real. And so being able to draw that line and go, I never want this to become what's real, to take precedence over, over what is real in my life, and that is going home to my wife mm-hmm. and staying plugged in with my you know, community and my friends. And so, again, yeah, oftentimes it's easy to, to switch those out and to mistake the performance element as, well, this is the real thing, when it's not. I had a, I had a friend once who was a bass and opera singer and uh, came to me and said, what do you think as a Christian? Because he was a believer too. And he said, I want to know your opinion about, uh, I've been offered a, a role with the Chicago Lyric hmm. uh, to play uh, Mephistopheles in Faust. Hmm. And uh, he said, what do you think? Do you think a Christian can, can play the devil, basically? You know? And I said, well, who, who better? Right. So <laughs> who better? To, who knows him better? You know, like right? C.S. Lewis so, and screw tapes. Exactly. Exactly. Letters. So, so the question isn't necessarily. I mean, the, the, the important question you're just asking about where you draw the line. What What will I do on stage? What will I not? What roles will I take? And what What do I need to turn down? Uh, or even if it's not a role, what What actions can I do right. on the stage that I can't uh, justify uh, by my conscience? You know, we. Uh, <clears throat> We teach the, at the, here at the center, uh, the kind of theme for our year each year is uh, the ordo amoris, the mm-hmm. ordering of your loves. And uh, that education is really uh, not so much learning facts about things, but learning how to uh, uh, calibrate your sensibilities so that your loves are attached to the right things to the right amount. Yeah. You know? And uh, your distinction just now about the difference between art and reality is a good one because you don't you're not saying that art not, not being reality that art somehow is of no value it's of great value right but it's almost as though the higher the value the more tempting it is to make it the idol and let mm-hmm. it let it eclipse god right but you need to put we need to put god in his place and love him the most and then good things under him like art uh, in their proper places and then you can appreciate them uh, f- properly. You see, I, it, it, the temptation, I think, a lot of times for Christians is to think of everything as yes or no. That is, you know, if we love God, then we don't do theater. 
Right. Nah. If we love God, we don't write, you know, don't read poetry, or we, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. What is the Bible like? I mean, the Bible contains so much of the arts. I mean, it literally yeah. says God sings in Zephaniah. He will exult over you with loud singing. I always yeah. love that imagery because the idea that singing isn't like something we invented, like the wheel. It's part of us being made in His image. Oh, yes. And you read the Psalms, and it's it's poetry, and so many declarations of be it dancing or singing. Uh, or creating arts. I mean, the Old Testament, you know, cr the craftsmen that were assigned yes. to the temple. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, that that has tremendous value and speaks to the fact that God wants us to create art. And in fact, it's why I love the fact that Jesus used parables so yes, often. Right. Is rather than just hitting them upside the head with something which he easily could have done, it's just the kingdom of heaven is like, like let me make this break this down for you. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the arts uh, can really push us to. To empathy, you know, it can push us to empathy. It can expand our imagination, and it, it, it used in its Christian form, I think, points us to traces of the divine. Which Amen. Is again, whereas Christians, we understand what it's pointing to, whereas people who wouldn't be Christians, that's the end right mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. That is the divine. Mm -hmm. um, so we have an advantage of being able to to do that. But no, I, I definitely think. Uh, it is a shame when people feel like it's an all or nothing because I think that culture flows downstream from the arts. Um, so re I hope that we get to a place where we can better create culture. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's there's an element of, uh, and I think it's maybe it's starting, uh, or maybe it's just getting some traction. I, I'm going to pray that it continues, but we're going to have to start creating culture. Mm -hmm. um, rather right. than just surrendering and, and saying, all right, well, the, the arts are lost. Right. Well, that's right. the worst take you could have because, again, the arts flow upstream from culture. So if we want to help, like, engage in the culture, then those of us who have been tasked as artists in the kingdom of God, I mean, we, we have to then create art um, yeah. and do what we can to promote stories and... Uh, be it poetry or dancing or what have you, that, that points to the ultimate, points to the creator that we serve. Amen. I think that's a good point. The, uh, the idea that culture becomes the, the fabric that holds the community together, that the, holds the, the civilization together. It's the means by which we uh, express who we are, what we value, how we love, what we love, and so mm. on. And, and so not only do we communicate it with each other, but we hand it down to the next generation. It's, it's the means by which the important things that are intangible get passed on. You have to have a way to communicate them, don't you? You can, you can speak them like we're talking right now to each other, communicating, but you can sing them, you can write poetry about them, you can paint paintings about them, you can write plays in order to uh, uh, get at the, the profundity of something. And uh, and so the 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 culture of a of a people teaches who they are, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and beyond that, I think the uh, the the reality is the the fact that reality is in two parts. That is, there's a material reality and a spiritual reality, and they're very close together, and they're involved with each other all the time. The the fact that that's what reality is, and not just the material, right means that if we want to be able to understand or see or comprehend or not even comprehend but apprehend the uh, the invisible side of reality we have to form it in some sort of material way yes to Im to imitate it you know to, to express it yeah I think that uh, I think it was RC Sproul who made a comment that um, he didn't agree with the the idea that in order for art to be good art it had to be Christian art. And he sort of made the point, rather, if it, is, if it is good art, if it is true art, if it is beautiful art, then it points to the author of the good and the beautiful mm -hmm. and the true. That's good. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I, uh, I, I'm delighted to whenever I hear that you are going to be performing something, because I think uh, you are continuing that work. And, uh, well, even uh, we might have another collaboration coming up if we can finish our little <laughs> musical. Uh, because be you uh, you have kindly been willing to sing the king's part in our Rumpelstiltskin uh, musical too that we've been doing <laughs> we've been doing for so many years in our spare time we never get around to doing anything about it and so it goes years go by and but 
answers um, the age-old question of what John Hodges does in his spare time. <laughs> That's what I do. He has spare time. <laughs> oh, I, I have a little bit, but it's not as much as I'd like to have. I've got <laughs> one song left to write for, for the Prince in the mm-hmm. show, and uh, and then we've we've got. Um, we've got a script and we've got our other songs and I think they're done. We're editing those right now and then uh, we're hoping to have a reading here soon uh, in Memphis. Um, Virus providing, you know, allowing, uh, God willing and the the virus not keeping us apart. Um, And then the plan, of course, is to uh, go to New York and and, uh, we've got a company up there. Actually, we have two competing companies now that are willing to willing to help us mount a, a, a sort of a sketchy reading of the show to show to producers and directors and people like that uh, and to see if there isn't any traction for the for That's the show. great. So that's coming up and we are, we're just holding on that because of the virus. We're, we, you know, Broadway's shut down. Nobody's doing anything up there. So uh, we, have the, we have the funds, we have the people. Well, we don't have, we'll see about the people yet. But I mean, we have uh, the funds and we have the, the producers. And uh, the only thing waiting is the uh, lifting of the, of the virus. You know, once yeah. it takes over and people start doing theater again, we're going to try and get up there. It is interesting. You know, I, I uh, write letters to my grandmother up in Michigan, mm. and I remember her commenting about how you know their experiences in in the World War II and this fear that you had of the enemy she said, but the difference being that we weren't afraid to gather together oh yeah and just kind of commenting on how how that makes this particular event we're going through so different mm. than previous times where yes you you're sort of bound together by this global catastrophe this global situation happening uh, but now the very thing we're created for, which is community, the very thing the arts speak to, which is empathy, which is you congregating with people and, and basically being forced to walk in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We've been robbed of that. And yeah, I, I hope that it uh, comes back soon and comes back with gusto and uh, for your sake, as well as all of my other colleagues in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely hear you. This has been a very strange time because it's, it starved us of the things that we were created for mm-hmm. and the things that were meant to build us up. Uh, I agree. Well, you and I were talking uh, the other day um, about uh, the social media world and Facebook in particular. And I, I always say I, I get on Facebook to try and cause as much trouble as I can <laughs> uh, with people. And I'm sort of notorious now for having ask hard questions and as uh, I might, uh, but <clears throat> your experience lately has been, has made you sort of change the way you've been thinking about uh, comments and, and all that on, on Facebook. What do you, what do you see happening and what do you think is helpful? Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it was Paul David Tripp who made the comment once about social media, that it's like a screwdriver. You can use it to assemble beautiful things and you can also stab someone in the face with mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. which i know is a little tongue-in-cheek but it's it's very true so he was basically talking through this level of accountability as in anything um, how do you make yourself accountable and we see that you know in the simple uh well and thinking through the internet as a whole mm-hmm. the, the amount of good you can accomplish with it and then you counter that with the amount of evil that is now more accessible, that you are now more easily exposed to because of it. And so there needs to be a level of accountability just in general. That's not speaking to any one person or group. It's just because we're human. We need that level of accountability. We are, we are broken. Uh, I definitely have, have uh, struggled a lot with how I choose to engage on social media. I think that in its heyday, uh, it was a place where people would, you know, they'd post a photo of here's where I'm eating or here's a movie I'm going to see. And the mm-hmm. comment section was where you went, oh, let me know how that is. Or, oh, I saw that last week. Or, oh, mm-hmm. we should eat there. It was a place where, oh, that's a person that I haven't seen since sixth grade. And here's how they're doing. You know, again, it was a way to, to bring people together, um, to, to unify people, right. so to speak. Right. Um, 
And even when you were asking certain questions, it was always with sort of this, this understanding of, of this is about unity, this is about coming together. And uh, I think it was uh, Ravi Zacharias who said, when the motive is destruction, unity could be dangerous. And he was actually talking about social media. Um, so unfortunately, what, it, what it's become, it's just become a, a bastion of virtue signaling. Mm. Um, because, and this is not just in, in the arguments on social media, I think that we can't separate ourselves. I know I can't, so I don't say this from some elevated perch. I say this as the worst of sinners um, because I look back on on previous posts that I made or comments that I made where I thought I was going to do some good. Um, and I realize now that uh, where I recognize it currently is that you can't make a comment on social media without at least subconsciously knowing other people are seeing this. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that. Yeah. And that's, it's a public forum. So then I played out that scenario in my mind. If you're going to have a hard discussion with somebody, and I think you'd actually, you're one of a, a handful of people I know who do this very well. You're able to keep it civil, and you're able to state things in a way, and also you're able to take the time to really think through things. And I tend to be more of a verbal processor. I would rather get together with somebody mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and have them in my back patio, and I, I think you'd be good with that too. I'm not trying to say no. one way or the other. But, uh, but I think visually in terms of, uh, if someone said something that concerned you, if a friend said something that concerned you, what does it say if, if you were to gather like 20, 30 people and go to that person in front of a crowd <laughs> yes. and say the thing? And that, call him out. <laughs> yeah, say, yes. you're, this is why you're wrong and this is why you're stupid and this yeah, is why you insert yeah, any amount yeah. of terms that people like to throw around these days. What do you think is going to happen? You've you've basically sacrificed a friendship on the altar of vanity, and and I, well I also know that there's you know there's a level where uh, we do need to call people out to some degree. Like there are going to be things where I'm going to to stumble. The Bible talks about you know friendship is what iron sharpening iron. That Amen. doesn't happen without friction. We mm. need that friction, but. It also talks about let you know, be gracious, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. You yeah. may know how to answer everyone. Um, and you have to ask yourself the question of what good am I accomplishing in the manner in which I'm addressing this problem? My dad used to say, don't, stir, don't serve a steak dinner on a trash can lid. Uh-huh. The element being yeah. that, that truth, and he would also say this, truth must always be presented as beautiful. Like... That doesn't mean there aren't ugly truths. The ugliness of racism is ugly because it points to a deeper, beautiful truth that because we are made in God's image, yes. we all have yes. equal value and worth in His eyes. Right. That's the beautiful truth, and that's what makes racism so, so ugly. Horrid. horrid, exactly. But if you just lead with the ugly, if that's yeah. it, if it doesn't come from a place of of the, the beautiful truth underneath, mm-hmm. uh, you do your argument a disservice. And I've been guilty of that. And I, I look back and I've just had to make apologies. I've had to reach out to people. I've had to make public apologies. Not because I felt that my intentions were wrong, but because I recognized now, looking back, that, that was not a wise way to go about it. Mm. I was serving a steak dinner on a trash can mm-hmm. lid. Whatever good I thought I was trying to do uh, was, I don't know, it, it was uh, overshadowed by my pride, by wanting oh. to be seen doing something. Oh, yeah, I see. And I'm mean. not trying to discredit serious conversation on social media. That sure. needs to happen. I personally have come to the place where if I make any post that I feel is going to be potentially inflammatory, um, I'll basically put a disclaimer at the bottom. This is not up for debate in the comment section. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it means that much to you, message me. Um, because I, I don't want to come across as I'm infallible, I've closed my mind on this, because um, I don't think that's healthy either. No. Um, I think that, and, I, and please feel free to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because again, I have tremendous respect for the fact that you are able and willing to engage uh, in the trenches of the comment section. It's almost like there's got to be a gentleman's agreement. I feel like there's this element of, all right, we're going to keep this well, we're not going to make this personal. It has to be that. Right. As soon as it becomes personal, then it just flies out of out of orbit. Right. You can't actually make sense of anything anymore. And one of the points, that, that's a great point, because the, the personal, since the personal side is such an important element, the way it becomes personal sometimes is through logical fallacies. 
the ad hominem attack in mm -hmm. particular, right? And so a lot of times I respond to people who just are very ugly like that, not so much I hope anyway, this is, my, this is my hope, not so much with hurt feelings, you've insulted me kind of thing, but to say that approach doesn't actually give valid truth. You can't, you can't use an ad hominem attack to, to, to prove your point, mm -hmm. you see. So it, it may seem like you know, you're a person who's making that argument is defending himself against some, some you know, somebody calling you stupid or something. But, but calling you stupid doesn't actually apply to the point that was being made. Right. It, you, can, you can say, I know I'm stupid. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, but that, what, what does that got to do with it, right? The point, so <clears throat> I'm, I'm, in a sense, I'm trying to get these, these debates back on a kind of logical footing. Now, this is a, this is a tangent here, but sometimes recently uh, I've gotten the response not so much yes we need to get the back back to a logical footing but that logic itself is not trustworthy anymore Correct. you know so that position that i've taken for so long has uh, has become well it's not compelling anymore uh, to some people it is interesting the era that we're living in and i, I won't name names but there was a uh, a public figure recently who made a comment that said i think it's more important to be morally right uh, than factually correct which oh, the wow. statement doesn't stand on its head like you don't know what's morally right unless you've looked at all the facts so to speak um, but i think it does speak to where our culture is on addressing certain issues um, yeah. Yeah. oftentimes people will try and claim they're preaching the gospel of compassion when really it's a gospel of envy and the mm -hmm. list goes on. Mm -hmm. This idea being that, well, you can list off all your facts and your arguments, but I feel that this is right and I exactly. feel that I care more. And that speaks to a whole different breakdown in communication that, that I think has been really sad to witness and that is that it used to be that you could discuss policy or arguments um, and, and try to get to the bottom of which argument is better without questioning the other person's humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that we've, we've just come so far past that. And part of that, again, goes back to we have more access to public forums and being able to voice things, you know, whether or not we're actually experts on them. Uh, a point you made a minute ago struck home with me. Uh, you were saying about <laughs> if you're if you're take if you take thirty of your best friends with you to support you and go to somebody's house and then yell at him. Uh, it's sort of what we do sometimes on Facebook on, on uh, social media. Uh, it strikes me that that is exactly the opposite of what Matthew 18 teaches us about how to deal with conflict. Oh, absolutely. Don't you think? So we're, Matthew 18 says to to uh, to go to the person alone. Go go yourself yes. to meet the person that you got the problem with, and don't gossip with other people about the problem. Go to the person you got the problem with. And in other words, you want to keep the circle of conflict as small as possible. And social media is, like you say, a public platform. The it's the public square almost nowadays. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, if you go to the public square and say these things about your conflict with another person, uh, you may very well be uh, <clears throat> abusing that notion that you're supposed to try and protect the circle of of conflict so that it doesn't spread beyond uh, any further than it has to. Absolutely. And again, how do we do that without dehumanizing someone? How do we get back to an era where we're able to discuss policies without saying, if you don't agree with where I stand, it's because you don't care? Uh -huh. Like, uh -huh. If you don't agree with, with this is what I propose as, well, this is what's going to fix the problem. And someone goes, well, I don't think that's right. I think this will fix the problem. It used to be, well, let's discuss the facts right. on why you think right. that will solve the problem. And these days, it's just, if you don't agree with my analysis of how to fix the problem, it means you don't care. Yeah, yeah. Again, and that makes you an evil person, actually. Right. If you don't have compassion for these people, then... And once you've, once you've stepped that far, once you've, you've made that jump, and especially once you're willing to do that publicly, hmm. um, 
what do you expect is going to happen? Do you expect someone to go, oh, you're right, now let's have a rational conversation. Let's let's go out and, and discuss this. Maybe it'll change my mind. No, the walls go up. Yeah, exactly. And you have done more to tear apart the social fabric of this country. Um, so absolutely, what can we do to establish some level of accountability? Um, it's, it's similar to, uh, again, I mentioned earlier the level of using the Internet. You know, I, I use Covenant Eyes on my phone. That's a filtering service, and I have accountability partners. And I know that if I go anywhere I shouldn't, I'm going to get called out. Yeah. I need yeah. that accountability in my life. That's a good thing. And so, unfortunately, there's no you know, filtering service uh, that kind of checks you on social media and goes, hey, hey, is this, is this loving? Is, yeah, right. Is this kind of each other up? Yes. Is, is yes. This, uh, you know, and again, that's not discrediting the fact that we have to have hard conversations. Sure. You know, the sure. Proverbs, one of the most uh, one of the hardest passages for me to try and live out and take when I am confronted is wounds from a friend can be trusted. Mm-hmm. That idea mm-hmm. that when you have a hard conversation with someone, again, coming from a place that truth is beautiful, you have to approach it like a surgeon. And a surgeon has to cause pain on the patient, mm-hmm. but the goal is to deal with the problem underneath, right. the real problem. Right. Like the surface wound will heal eventually, but it's to get to the real harm uh, in this person's life. And that's how we are called to address friends and people that we know when we call them out. It has to be from a place of love and concern for them. And I find that I, I don't see a desire to show that concern when people are just venting and dehumanizing mm-hmm. their neighbor mm-hmm. in the comment section. And you know, there's there's a even higher calling than that in the Sermon on the Mount to love not just your neighbors and your friends, but your enemies. Absolutely. So how do you treat your, how do you treat your enemy with that kind of dignity? That's what we're talking about here. Uh, much, much more so your your friend your that you disagree with on social media. But I mean, if you had your your worst enemy on there, would you would you find ways to uh, give his humanity dignity and give his point uh, its its due as, yes. as it were? That that's a that's a high calling. I had a <laughs> had a guy say one time in a in a sermon, um, you have to be careful. Uh, in this life, not to make enemies. You don't want to make enemies. Because if you make enemies, you have to love them. Oh, well, that's well said. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was pretty smart, you know, because that's what we're called to. It's a, it's a much higher calling even than the Old Testament eye for an eye, right? It's a, Absolutely. It's a very high calling indeed. But it's because of the fact you mentioned before, because of, the, because of what you said before, that we're made in the image of God. And because of that, we, we each deserve dignity. When I say that, I'm not trying to say you need to treat me with dignity. I'm saying that's a calling on me to treat you with dignity, whatever you do. Well, and those who subscribe to the gospel, which is a gospel like going back to Les Mis, a gospel of redemption, a Mm -hmm. gospel of showing grace, a gospel of believing that that I'm, I'm not God. Therefore, every person I see has the potential to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I often have to challenge myself when I discuss things with people on either side, be it the political aisle or otherwise, and I'll sort of throw out as an idea, take the person on the other side of the aisle that you loathe so much. Do you pray for their salvation? Amen. Right. Would, would, do you consider that there is hope that, you know, is there a hope in you that would desire that person, as vile as you may think they are, to come to know Jesus Christ? Or are we now a culture that plays judge and jury to people's hearts and says, you are irredeemable. Right. And to me, that's the most dangerous thing. I I look at our general discourse and I think, you know, I've always said there are two rules of friendship. The first is forgiveness. It's not if, it's when. When I mess up, I'm going to need forgiveness Mm -hmm. and I'll do the same to you. And the second one is benefit of the doubt. And that is before assuming to know your heart, if you say something that be it hurts me or I have questions about or I'm concerned about, as your friend, I'm going to go to you. Mm-hmm. And more and more, I just see this element of writing people off, of looking at someone and going, all right, well, we don't agree on that. So again, therefore, you don't care. Therefore, you are in favor of bad things happening. Oh, therefore, right. Right. I want nothing to do with you. And I'm going, where is the gospel of grace, the gospel yes. of redemption, the gospel of forgiveness? Right. Um, 
it's easier, that's not easier, but it's more understandable when I'm engaging with someone who I know doesn't know the Lord, and I see that happen. Um, but it's incredibly hard when it comes from people who, who, who love the Lord, mm-hmm. yeah. that we've all become so jaded that we would think that anyone is outside the possibility of the saving grace of God. Well, and there's a, a temptation to think I'm doing good by standing up for the truth or, the, or ju- justice, right? right? I, I, and it's understandable that, that that would be a good thing. I mean, we should stand for justice. Absolutely. But there's a higher calling than even justice. And that's what I think we're missing now. We, we, we forget that grace, if, if there's one thing that I've been, that I have not been given, that I'm more grateful for, than anything else. It's that I haven't been given justice. Absolutely. If all of us were given justice, where would we be? Absolutely. Well, and, and you and I have talked at length about um, the verse, uh, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with right. your God. Right. The idea that that is a three-legged stool, mm-hmm. um, that you need all three elements, justice without a love of mercy, without humility, um, or mercy without justice, without, you know, you, and you yes. can play out all the different scenarios and it takes all three. So if you're just pushing justice, but devoid of a love of mercy, devoid mm-hmm. of humility, it's mm-hmm. vengeance. It's not justice. You don't actually accomplish any of those three things unless all three are present. Well and said. again, I don't say that as if I've mastered it. I feel Heavens. that every Me day. And that's why, again, we need the gospel. We need to be realigned with the cross and recognize, you know, my, my old pastor used to say, you will only be able to show as much grace as you recognize has been shown to you. That's a great point. That reminds me of that parable about uh, the uh, the uh, servant who can't forgive his fellow servant. Mm. You remember? Um, that's that's a great point because it's because it's because he's forgotten that he's been forgiven so much that it is so hard for him to forgive the smaller debt yes. from someone else. So to ask somebody to forgive a gen- forgiveness. We had a neat uh, conversation not too many weeks ago with Ronnie Stevens. You know mm-hmm. Ronnie Stevens uh, uh, on forgiveness. Talked to him about, about forgiveness, and uh, uh, it, it it was it was so clear that to ask somebody to forgive is not just asking them to uh, to to forget what's happened or or to uh, excuse what's happened. Right. It's it's not forgiveness unless there's a genuine offense that's been given. Yeah. You know, so it, by definition, if it's if there wasn't much of an offense, if it wasn't a genuine offense, then forgiveness is not what you call is called for. Maybe forbearance or something. Yeah. You know, uh, getting along, but but not forgiveness. So if you're asking somebody to forgive, you're asking him to forgive something that is a true offense. Mm-hmm. Well. How can you do that? You can't do that unless you know how much you've been forgiven and then suddenly it's in context that you can forgive, you see. Right. I think that's really the essential element. And so maybe the church needs to be thinking not so much about how to get justice in the world, but how to teach how the depths of the forgiveness that we've been given each. Absolutely. You know? um, it's a temptation, I think, to to well, like you said, virtue signal. It's a it's a kind of virtue signaling that says I'm standing up for the for the just for the justice. Especially if it's it seems very it seems very selfless to say I'm not just standing up for an offense against me. I'm standing up for an offense against you. But <laughs> at the clause, I I want to be seen standing up for the offense. Against that's the thing that's um, so tempting. I think that we don't. Recognize. And then we reverse that and say, if I don't see you utilizing the same platform to stand up for the offense, I have fair game to assume that you therefore don't care. Right. Rather that than reaching out way. and going, hey, let's talk about this. Right. Where do you stand? What's going on? How are you involved? Right. Um, right. Well, and with the idea, like you were saying, with the idea that you're interested in the redemption of the soul, not just the condemnation of a person. Right. And again, that goes back to the truth is beautiful. Mm. Like the truth of God's grace is beautiful. When you, you think of the story behind a hymn like Amazing Grace, mm. um, he, he would have been canceled in today's culture <laughs> right. because of his past. Right. But to be able to say it is the amazing grace of God, 
that allows a sinner like me to know that when I die, I will go to heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is a gospel worth proclaiming. That is a beautiful truth that we can build a life upon. And, and our desire to seek to show that to people, it's, it undermines its own intent when we try to do it so harshly. Because we think, well, we're just speaking their language. Well, we're just, you know, this is just how people talk. Well, I'm just going to, you know, put it in your face. And th- where do you see Christ doing that except for maybe, I guess the argument could be in the temple. I mean, it usually is when he's addressing members of the church. But, but even then, um, <laughs> I mean, trying to compare, I think oftentimes we like to list the moments of Jesus' righteous anger as though we can then do that. So in our minds, we're like, well, in the spirit of being perfect like Jesus, I'm going to overturn these tables. Yeah. But yeah. we also know our heart is deceitful above all things. So you have to check yourself at the door and go, it's one thing to say Jesus was angry for the right reason. We should be angry about things. But again, do justice, love mercy, right. walk humbly with your God. You can't just pick one and say, I am therefore allowed to dehumanize my neighbor because I'm angry about something that he should be angry about. And you have no clue if that person's angry about it or not. Mm-hmm. You just assume based on something that they did or didn't post online. And again, right. where does that put us? Um, versus trying to, to show the gospel and how we deal with people and present it as, as a beautiful truth to this world. I mean, this is a world that we don't need to be convinced that it's broken. <laughs> no. All people are discussing no. is what will it take to fix it? Yeah. And people are presenting these ideas that, well, if we just do this, if we just have these laws, if we just have this, well, then, like, what? This perfect utopia uh, that, that you're, you know, that's always the, there's a, an Os Guinness book that I'm reading through called Fool's Talk, where he's basically saying most people, in the most recent chapter, he said most people haven't really thought through their their worldview to the end of the track. Mm-hmm. They haven't taken mm-hmm. it to its logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, they they know where they want to end up, but they haven't done. It's like they've they've got a point A and a point C, and point B is just really vague area. And so in many oh cases, discussing apologetics or just discussing faith or even discussing policy, you're looking at a conversation where someone has a well-developed point A. Here's a problem, mm-hmm. and a well-developed point C. I want to get to here. Mm-hmm. And their point B is kind of hazy. And if you're willing to go, okay, we'll talk this out. How do you think that's going to work with, with human beings being human beings? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, I heard a guy say one time, uh, yeah, we want to we get to that communist utopia. But in the meantime, we got to sift our way through the gulag, you know. <laughs> I'll oh, see man. you on the other side of the gulag oh, kind of man. thing. The, the, the ends can't justify the means. They can't. We, right. can't. we can't become those who think that because the, 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 the vision we're casting is so beautiful and perfect that any, any attempt we make to get there is okay. Yeah, and, and I would say that a desire to see, you know, this utopia, this heaven on earth that they're wanting, I would say that that's a desire that, that we all long for. Yeah, sure. Um, the question is whether you think it is attainable here on earth. Mm. Um, but even then, I know there's a lot of you know, questions or comments and thoughts underneath that that you can discuss regarding, well, that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and say, well, let's just accept all the brokenness right now. Right, no, right. Those are the, not the only two should, options. Again, do justice. We should pursue that. You okay. see something, absolutely address it. But love mercy. Walk humbly. Like, you can't, you can't cast aside those other two qualities. And there's a, there is a kind of a theological assumption that steps in there that we can, um, as Bill Buckley used to say, imminentize the eschaton. Hmm. You you can't we can bring about utopia in this world and and really that's not possible right. as long as we're broken as long as we're sinners uh, we aren't going to be able to do that but like you say you don't want to not do anything you stand right. against the effects of the fall in the way that you've been called to do and and uh, pray for God's strength to do it but the idea that if you know any system is judged on whether or not it achieved perfection. Mm-hmm. Is, a, is a fool's errand, it seems to me. Right. Well, I think that's why in what we're seeing 
a lot of today's discussion, if you break it down, it goes back to how you view humanity in general. Because mm. if you're coming from the place that humanity is basically good, and it's our environment that corrupts us, right. well, then it stands to reason that you would therefore argue that if we just adjust and correct the environment, yes. we'll create a society where people don't envy their neighbor, and they'll <laughs> right. do their jobs happily, and everything will work wonderfully, and we will achieve this utopia on Earth. And to say nothing of the fact that if you read any history book whatsoever, that doesn't stand up to the test. Um, again, those who know that they are broken, fallen sinners in need of a Savior. And to me, that tends to be, at least in my own heart, that tends to be the issue, is that if you admit you're broken, if you get to a place where you admit that you are you are broken to a point that you need someone or something to save you, mm. That is something that oftentimes when you're dealing with a secular culture, they don't want to think about that. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. can't, you can't get to a place where you go, I'm, I'm broken and can't fix myself. Right. It's got to be a government program that will right. fix things. It's got to right. be more this that will fix things. It's got to be, you know, and, and there, there's nothing inherently wrong with certain things. But again, you, you make the, you know, more out of the gift than the giver. Um, you try and, and say, well, this, this temporal thing will fix it, when really what you're asking people to do is recognize their need of a savior. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the bigger question. It's why, again, it's like that's at the heart of so many of these discussions is your understanding of what will save you. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I think it's human nature uh, to, to put off death to self that way, because that's really what that is. Mm -hmm. um, as long as possible, and there's it's constantly think there's some other way. There has to be another way. If I if I die to myself, then who knows what'll happen? You know who mm -hmm. that, that I'm out of control then. Right. So if so, I've got to find some variable, external variable that I could that I could tinker with that would bring about the end that is short of my having to admit that I've got the problem inside me. I'm born with a with a clean slate and perfection, but it's the environment that I grow up in. It's my parents or my government or my church or my uh, society, uh, the, the, the pressures of all those things that really mess me up, you know, do, do damage to me. <laughs> so I got to tinker with all those things. Even Plato understood this. This is pre-Christian. He recognized that there had to be some kind of internal ordering before uh, the city, the, the police, the, the republic would be uh, ordered, you know, but he never knew how to do it. The, the, the Christian understands how it comes to be, right? Isn't that interesting? And kind of coming full circle, there are certain shows that I think of or certain composers. Um, I've done several Sondheim shows, mm. and usually when I, I talk with people about them, either beforehand or afterwards, my take on it is I think Sondheim asks a lot of great questions. I don't think he has the answers to them. Right. But he asks good questions. The right. idea of Into the Woods, and I got to play the princes one time. Well, one of the princes, that would have been a weird show, me playing both. <laughs> um, but it uh, would have been entertaining. Um, but this idea that at the end of Act One, everyone gets their happy ending. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then, like once upon a time later, yeah. and he kind of shows, well, if you're life's goal is just to get the next thing. It's just, well, this, this desire I have, well, now doesn't fill that desire anymore, so it must be something else. Right. Something else will help me accomplish this. And again, I, I don't think that he has the answer to that question, but it's a good question to right. have. Right. And I think it's why so many uh, theaters will only do like the first act. <laughs> Is that right? A lot of times high schools will especially we'll only do, will the, do first the first act? act because then it's a happy ending. Oh my goodness! That misses the point of the play. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, that's amazing. I, you know, I we're doing a, as you know, we're doing a show about a fairy tale, and I've always kind of felt like maybe this. I don't know whether I'll put this on there or not, but <laughs> always felt like our Rumpelstiltskin show is the antidote to Into the Woods hmm. because not because I'm I'm being sappy and sentimental about the endings, but about uh, the question, and I think. I think the point is that Sondheim doesn't understand fairy tales because hmm. fairy tales are not meant to be reality. 
Right. They're they're meant to speak about reality, but they're not meant to be reality. And I think, you know, the the end, as you know, the ending of it, he says, the moral is basically watch what you teach your children. Right. <laughs> right. Don't don't give them this sort of pie in the sky uh, perfection to aim for because they're going to be disappointed. It's going to break their hearts. And then to your point, I think of a G.K. Chesterton quote. It's got to be one of my favorites where he said, uh, fairy tales exist not to teach us that dragons exist, but to teach us that dragons can be beaten. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's meant to be the point of fairy tales. Um, but I, one of the things he says is fairy tales are for the purpose of teaching you that uh, reality is magical. The, the, the reality is actually weirder than fairy tales. Oh, absolutely. Much stranger. And, and yeah, so. we are only crafting things within, again, being made in God's image. He is a creator. We are therefore creators, many creators. And the things right. that people think up, uh, even in their most creative moments, pale in comparison to the beauty that's even outside the windows where we're sitting, yeah. um, the actual nature that is out there. And oftentimes that can be the danger is to mistake... Uh, to mistake the, the fantastical story for the actual beauty. It's meant to point you to a true beauty, a genuine beauty, right. the real giver of life and the real giver of imagination. Um, and the, and explore. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and to recognize, to, to be able to see things that you take for granted because we take the beauty of the world for granted. We, we don't pay attention to it. We see it every day. We don't pay any attention to it. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, Chesterton says, uh, um, if all you ever knew were apple blossoms, how would you ever in your wildest imagination imagine an apple? Mm. If all you ever knew were eggs, how would you in your wildest imagination imagine a chicken, mm. you know, from the egg? But, but because we see those two connected so often, apple blossoms and then apples and so on, uh, we take it for granted and we don't think of it as, as wild and crazy and, you know, all that. But Chesterton says it is much weirder, stranger than, I think the example he uses is um, in fairy tales, um, you can find a, a prince that becomes a bear, for example. Mm -hmm. But he says princes and bears are a lot closer together in in my imagination than apples and apple blossoms are. Mm. You know, so the reality... The only explanation for apples and apple blossoms or eggs and chickens is magic. It's the magic of God. He's made it that way, and we should look at it and say, oh my goodness, that's astonishing. Every time we see it. Absolutely. Birth of a child, you know. Oh, goodness. Um, it's, it's a miracle every time. He says, rivers, in fairy tales, rivers run with wine so that we might always be astonished to find rivers in reality running with water. Yeah. Well, and again, that just speaks to God placing us here and surrounding us with this incredible masterpiece of artistry mm. that we get to live in, and that we can approach Him just as much on a mountaintop or in the woods as we can in a cathedral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And cathedrals being created to take people out of the mundane of their life and be transported to, this is the closest we can come to the majesty of God. And to redirect your spirit to see, okay, like there is a being that is sovereign and is and rules and reigns above all the chaos of my life, but that God is just as worshiped in that highest setting as he is in your home. Mm. The idea that mm. he wants you to call him the creator of all things, um, majestic and powerful and holy, 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 and he's your Abba Father. Right. That's just, right. it's beautiful. It's, it's, just, it's astonishing. It's, it's astounding and astonishing. Well, I really appreciate your take on social media and, and that, I think that, that notion of not sort of debating all these issues in the comments, but trying to debate them with people because you need, you want to discuss them with people, uh, but you want to do it in person or at least in private uh, exchange. Yeah, I think that one of the things you and I talked about recently is I've really come to think of relational interactions as a meal. And if you think of it in terms of a meal, social media interactions should be the dessert. 
of that meal. Mm -hmm. What we're doing right here, Mm -hmm. in-person communication, uh, meeting with people, communing with people, with a friend group that you can make yourself accountable to, build each other up in the faith, encourage each other in your walk with Christ, that's the main course. That's meant to be the main course of your relationship interaction. And for many of us, either subconsciously or purposefully or due to COVID, um, we've had to reverse that. Right. And we have so many people that are unhealthy. And again, I, I feel as if I'm right there. I'm trying to, as many people are, wean myself back to, okay, what's a healthy way to reverse course and recognize that the majority of my relational interactions, the ones that are substantial, that actually mean anything, should be the ones that are in person or at least are face-to-face, even if that's via Zoom, if you're with somebody you can't meet for whatever reason. Right, right. And when you deal with people and address conflict, uh, it should always be with the intent of, hey, if this gets to a place where I've hurt you, um, message me. Yeah. Let's meet up. I yeah. don't want yeah. you to think that I would wish ill upon you, that I would think ill of you, that that I, I and mean, if you see me saying something I shouldn't, and I've said this to several people on both sides of the aisle, like if you see me saying something that you think is unloving or runs against the kind of person you know I desire to be, mm. Message me, call me, text me. I'm not infallible. I'm going to need that sharpening. Mm-hmm. But but that way of doing it yeah. affirms my humanity and, and our friendship. It tells me that, that you have benefit of the doubt, that you know that I'm going to assume you didn't mean to come across this way. Right. That will mean so much more to help me grow. You know, we write people off by assuming they're not going to change their mind. They're not going to grow. But let's be honest, the best advice we were ever given wasn't well, I will say hardly ever was the advice that we in the moment, you know, said, aha, you're right. I'm changing my mind. Yeah, right. Some of the best advice, be it from our parents or our close friends, was advice that we might have even vehemently disagreed with in the moment. And then you go and think about it and anywhere from a day to a week to, in my case, with some of the things my dad advised me on, like 20 years later, <laughs> um, and I'm going, okay, I see what he said. See what he, he was, was a wise about. man. That was yeah. a, a wise thing to say. But we, we do our friends a disservice by assuming that God can't use us in loving confrontation to, to help them on their sanctification journey as he can them with us. Because that's yeah. what we're created for. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's very good. That's very good. Well, I, I think it's going to make me think carefully about any responses I make. And maybe encourage those sorts of one-on-one. I have a lot of those anyway, um, because, well, I guess I initiate some, but other people initiate them too, uh, thinking that we can go deeper into a, an issue individually than we can on the uh, on the comment section. I think one of the things that motivates me so much about that is not so much the engagement with the person that I disagree with, but the t- trying to defend a position that I know is, I believe is right. I wouldn't hold it if I didn't think it was right. But uh, for the people who are reading but not able to com- comment, mm-hmm. you know, the majority of people look at those those uh, uh, threads, uh, don't comment, right. you know. And I think one of the most dangerous things for us today, especially with this virus going on, uh, is a sense of isolation. Yes. We feel like we're alone with a with an opinion and and nobody else is thinking this anymore and it's it's devastating it can be really hard we're like you were saying we're made for community we're made to be engaged with each other um now the way the, the majority of our discussion here has been about the way we con- converse with each other uh and that is maybe the primary uh reason why fissures are happening but the secondary problem is is just this isolation and so if you feel like your position is alone, that everybody else holds the other view, it can be really, uh, really devastating to your heart, to your soul. So I try, and, I try and speak for the people that I think are reading but are not commenting or don't have a way to argue. Absolutely. And again, I, I will say my, my take on social media is just something that I've learned about myself. Um, I definitely consider that you're one of those people. There's a handful of people I can think of who who are able to converse with people without questioning their humanity. Um, But even then, when you do that, you understand that, 
I mean, Facebook has given the village idiot the megaphone since 2004. So you run the risk of someone trying to hijack a comment section, of someone taking it personally, even if you didn't mean to take it personally, and then therefore responding with, you know, hurt feelings, and then their their walls of defense go up, and then they fire back with something, and and then that's just documented for people to see. So I I commend you for that desire. I. I uh, I don't think that we are called to disengage. Right. No, no, I don't hear that uh, from you at all. The, you know, speak the truth in love. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Right. The idea being that if you at all sense that a person is starting to take things personally, yeah. that a person you be in the comment section or what have you, what you talked about, that principle in Matthew, go to that person. That's right. Um, but we then have to have the collateral friendship to feel like we can go to a person and say, you've hurt me. And that, again, speaks to we are not a culture that preaches forgiveness. We're not a culture that preaches grace. Right. Um, so we have to get past that. What can we do to encourage that? What would it look like if people were more... Uh, what would it look like if people had a better understanding of showing that grace to people of of understanding the element of forgiveness of understanding the element of i can come to you mm-hmm. i can like wound some friend can be trusted i can risk wounding you um because i'm doing it because our friendship means so much mm-hmm. i'm doing it out of respect for you out of a desire to love you and i i don't see that happening when people get hurt on social media you know, there's an old saying, it's not that old, but because social media hasn't been around that long. But I said, there's a fine line between what you tell your therapist and what you put online. <laughs> and that sounds cruel, right. but again, I've been guilty of it too. <laughs> Facebook asked, how are you feeling? Yeah. And it's yeah. become this yeah. online blog where everyone can interact with. But then, I don't know, again, it's going back to the Robbie Zacharias quote. I mean, when destruction is the motive, unity is actually dangerous. That's so, a very interesting thought. Um, but when goodness, you know, when kindness is the motive, it can absolutely be a wonderful thing. Right, right. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop. Um, I always like to end these podcasts with uh, the question about uh, what you've been reading, what you might recommend. You know, is there any recommendation you'd like to make? Something you've been reading, some movie you've seen, some poem you've read, some Ooh. anything that you can tell our listeners is, uh, is uh, worth pursuing oh goodness uh i'm i'm always reading and i'm always reading far too many books um i'm a huge fan of the works of alexander dumas oh yes um, so yes, i'm rereading yes. count of monte cristo how wonderful I'm still waiting for someone to turn that into an opera because that's just perfect opera material the revenge the intrigue the, oh yeah i mean there's there's practically straight up arias that are on the page <laughs> um so i'm rereading that um wonderful wonderful that's a great idea yeah. Very good. Very good. So if you would like to comment on anything you've heard today, uh, give us your concerns. We're happy to hear your questions and your interest. Uh, write to me, would you, at uh, director at centerws.com. I'll be very glad to talk to you. Uh, and Go to our website, centerws.com, uh, to see what we're doing with our gap year program and with our Uh, online seminar. We have an online seminar we're doing now on every other Tuesday night. Uh, We'd love to have you uh, join us for part of that. We've already started, but we'll continue that hopefully into the summer. And uh, we have uh, regular podcasts that are coming out every Friday morning, hopefully, God willing. Um, And we'll have this one on uh, with Philip in not too many days. So um, Philip, thanks again for coming. It's always a joy to be with you and uh, to make music with you and to talk with you here. Um, we hope to see you again uh, real soon. Yes, sir. It's been a pleasure. 